0: Welcome. Whether you're joining us on site or online, thank you for being here. Thank you for being a part of the Hammock Street community. If you've been able to support our ministry, we thank you very much. We're very grateful for you. If you haven't done so yet, I'd like to ask you to prayerfully consider supporting us. You can sign up for regular giving online at hammockstreetchurch.com or through our app, the Hammock Street Church app. It's really actually the, the top downloaded app in the app. No, it isn't. That's not true at all. But it should be, but it is, it is not. Anyway, today we're beginning a new series that is, at the same time, a bit of a departure from our typical sermon series, but also a reflection of the very thing that drives us to do the things that God has called us to do. Because in this series, what we're going to be doing is, whether we like it or not, It's addressing something that occupies a great deal of our mental capacity every single day. What is that? Well, it's the state of the world and our place as followers of Jesus in it. And as we get started, I want you all to understand where I'm coming from as we consider this topic. Now, as many of you know, I came to know Jesus by way of an atypical route. I didn't meet Jesus in a church. I wasn't evangelized by a stranger who handed me a tract that contained the four spiritual laws. And as I thought about that, I thought there are probably people who don't even know what any of those words mean, evangelized tract and four spiritual laws. So, so what, I, what didn't happen was nobody approached me, uninvited, asked me if I knew where I was going when I die, handed me a small booklet, told me how sinners can be rescued or saved by God. Nobody did that to me. I met Jesus through a coworker whom I had asked a question that I expected to just be a simple non-religious question. My question was, why in this place, the law firm I was working in at the time, where nobody is pleasant and nobody is happy, are you pleasant and happy? I did not expect his answer to be Jesus. In answer to my question, he told me all about Jesus. He told me that we're all born into this world with a human nature, which makes sense. We call that a sin nature. It causes us to rebel against God. We inherited that sin nature from our parents who inherited it from theirs and so on all the way back to creation. Now, our sin rebellion leaves us eternally separated from God and stuck in our disobedience. And that is not good. That is bad news. But then he explained to me there is good news. Notwithstanding that inherent sinfulness, the sinfulness with which we're born, Jesus loves us anyway. And out of his love for us, he's made a way for us to be connected to the God of the universe forever if we'll turn from our natural selves and understanding how Jesus paid for all of our sins when he died, was entombed, and rose from the dead, ascending to heaven, promising to return to usher in God's kingdom here on earth. If understanding all that, we turn from the way that we were, that's called repentance, and we devote our lives to his lordship. That's what he told me, and I did it. So having committed my life to Jesus, I began to start to try to learn what that was supposed to look like because I had never known a thing about Jesus. Thankfully, it was really easy to see what it meant. I saw that the first thing I needed to do was develop my love for God and for other people. We read in the Bible, When the religious leaders were trying to trip Jesus up so that they could justify the persecution that they wanted to subject him to, they asked him to identify the most important of God's commandments. Now, with this question, here's what they figured. They figured they had him. Because they, they kind of set him up in a Kafka trap. There was no good answer as far as they were concerned. They set him up to highlight only one law, only one commandment in response. And then they figured there would be nine that he ignored or minimized. And then they could go ahead and hammer him with that and accuse him of heresy. But Jesus, as always, was a few steps ahead of them when he responded like this in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. Okay, that's what they were hoping for. So they kind of chambered their heresy shot. They leveled the gun, but Jesus continued and he confounded them. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And here's what he said in verse 40. All the law and the prophets, all the law and the prophets he didn't ignore anything. He stacked them all up hang on these two commandments. By the way, we're not going to get deep into the interpretation of these verses in this series, but we're just looking at them here so we can understand what's going on. So there's a little bit of background for us. Now, Jesus used these two commandments to summarize and include all the other commandments set forth in the Hebrew scripture. In short, Jesus said that God's greatest commandments are to love him and to love each other. Now, when I read that, I thought, okay, Got it. That's what people who follow Jesus are called to do. Very simple. Then, before not too long, I, I learned two more things to which God has called his people. One, to be witnesses. Acts 1.8. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And two, to make disciples. Matthew 28.19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So, in sum, here's what God requires of his people love God, love others, be a witness, make disciples. Everybody understand that? It's pretty straightforward, right? And inasmuch as I knew virtually nothing about Christians at the time, I was very happy, I was very enthusiastic about my newfound faith. It seemed to me that faith in Jesus transcended. It rose above the issues of the world. That's what I was looking for. That seemed those issues of the world, took up so much of my time that I thought, i got to get out of this. And the Bible even confirmed my understanding of that. Because here's what Paul said in Ephesians 6. Our struggle, that's our struggle, all of us as believers, is not against flesh and blood. It's not against the people. It's against the rulers and authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our battle is a spiritual battle, not a human battle. So armed with just this minimal amount of information, I went back to my friend and I said, okay, now what do I do? Got all that. I understand all that. What do I do next? I profess my faith in Jesus, and I was asking him to guide me. Okay, what's my next step? Where do I go? And he said, go to a good Bible-teaching church. Excellent, I thought. I can do that. I had started reading my Bible. I got my initial understanding of Jesus from the Bible. And a church that would teach me more Bible seemed like just what the doctor ordered. Thankfully, he sent me to a great Bible-teaching church, and it was in that church I began to interact with church people. I'm using that term as a defined term, church people. Looking back, saying that word sounds really weird to me, because for more than 25 years, almost all the people with whom I interact daily are church people. And I love my church people, but I'm not talking about my church people. By the way, you're all my church people. I'm talking about big C, church, big P, people, church people in the global sense. I'm talking about the subculture of church people in which we so often find ourselves when we try to find our place in the larger Christian community. Because it was from the church people that I learned about things such as Christian radio including contemporary Christian music. I learned about Christian movies. I learned about Christian speakers and preachers. I learned about Christian books. I learned about Christian symbols. You know, the fish you put on the back of your car, the ichthus. Learned about that. I learned about Christian branded t-shirts. Things go better with Christ, right? I mean, you've seen the shirts, right? I haven't learned about Christian fast food. All of these things, by the way, are more or less okay, if not really great, like like Chick-fil-A. But they generally help us to know more about our faith and can even help us more closely bond with each other, with other believers. But it wasn't long before I found out about Christian politics or more specifically what many demanded that fellow believers in Jesus ascribe to regarding their American politics. Now, before I continue, because now I'm getting on a little bit of thin ice here, and I get that. I need you to understand. What I'm about to say doesn't mean I'm telling you you can't follow politics, okay? I've had an interest in in politics since I was a little kid. My family is very political. My extended family is very political. Everybody is very well-versed in politics. We talk politics around my dinner table when I was just a kid. We talk politics at all our extended family gatherings. I held elected office, student government offices in high school and in college. I like politics so much that my undergraduate degree is in political science, okay? So I know politics, I like politics, I follow politics, but that wasn't the issue. The issue was that politics seemed to be of central importance, primary importance to many in my new world, in the world of church people. And the way that politics were being discussed among them was not in line with the other things that I was learning about living the life of a follower of Jesus. It seemed that loving God, loving others, being a witness, and making disciples all that was forced to take a back seat to division, judgment, arrogance, condescension, acrimony, all inspired by politics. And while it's certainly a free country and one can make a solid argument as to how it's important for a free nation to engage in political discussion and debate, and I absolutely can make those arguments, the people of God, the followers of Jesus, have been called to something even higher. See, America's at a crossroads. We're more divided now than we've been in a very long time. In fact, that seems to be the one thing upon which we can all agree right now. We're divided. As followers of Jesus, we ought to be a part of the solution to that problem and not a part of the problem itself. If we remain faithful, we ought to be able to steer our nation onto the road to recovery, and that's what we're going to be talking about in this new series, Recovery Road. All right, so that's where we'll be going. Why don't we pray and we'll get started? Father God, thank you for gathering us together this morning. Thank you for the community that you're building here at Hammock Street, both on site and online. Thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to understand how you would have us live this life, and to understand the calling that you've given each one of us. So, God, As we continue on this morning, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds to your word and conform us to your likeness. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start off with a very simple analogy, which I can introduce with a very simple question. Here's the simple question. If someone that you loved dearly had a fatal disease and you had unlimited access to the cure for free, how long would you wait before you told your loved one about it and got them on the road to healing? How long would you wait? You wouldn't wait at all, would you? This is somebody you really love, okay? You wouldn't even wait a minute. Well, when it comes to all the issues, all the issues that are plaguing our nation, we are holding the cure. We already have the cure. A heartfelt, sincere faith in Jesus and a life lived in obedience to him will, will, not might, not can, will change everything. Frankly, I should be able to stop the sermon right here, pray us out, and we can go home. But I can't. Why not? Because there's some reason they're not interested to hear what we know. Those people, what we know. Why is that? Well, let me add to my hypothetical a little bit. What if I had the very same fatal disease that my friend has? And what if I very publicly refused the treatment to which I referred? What do you think that would do to my credibility regarding the cure? What do you think? I would have no more credibility. It would destroy my credibility. No one would be interested in the cure. Why would that destroy my credibility? Because I would be perceived as a hypocrite. All right, what's a hypocrite? A hypocrite is a person who expects something of someone else that they are unwilling to do themselves. Okay, in short, a hypocrite is a person who advocates one thing but does the opposite. Now, throughout the New Testament, Jesus encountered the religious leaders of his day, and he reserved his harshest words for them. You know what he called them? Hypocrites. Twenty times in the New Testament, Jesus called out the religious leaders of his day as hypocrites. In the Sermon on the Mount alone, Jesus told his audience to not act like the hypocrites who gave money to show off, who prayed to show off, who fasted, to show off. Twenty times Jesus told his people to not be hypocrites. Yet, notwithstanding that, today, far too often, we as church people can be perceived as hypocrites too. How? Well, sadly, there are a lot of examples. But for purposes of this series, I want to focus on one hypocrisy that has become, rightly or not, widely regarded as unique to church people. The hypocrisy that arises when we raise our faith in politics or our faith in government above our faith in God. In the world, as it is today, on some level, no matter where we land on the political spectrum, we all do that. Whether we're liberal or conservative... Independent or libertarian, traditional or progressive, we all seem to be allowing our understanding of and faith in politics, politicians, and government to overshadow the one thing that should unify us and hold the key to much of what ails us as a nation, and that's our faith in Jesus. We need to stop doing that, which is why we're calling this message, We the People. Today, we're going to talk about why we need to stop doing that. So we'll start off by looking at where we stand presently. Now, no matter where you fall on the political spectrum, and I want you to understand this, don't try to be guessing who belongs in what bucket or whatever. You'll never guess the bucket I belong in. I've tried to make a life making sure that no one can guess those sorts of things. But no matter where you fall on the political spectrum, there's one thing about which... Everyone in America believes right now, and that's, we're a divided nation. Some people say that we're more divided now than any time since the Civil War. Is that true? I don't know. There's no way to test that. No one really knows. But it doesn't stop anybody from voicing their opinion on the subject. As I constantly lament, if you stand around me long enough, we live in a time when people feel the need the need to broadcast all their thoughts and opinions no matter how wrong, no matter how ill-conceived, no matter how irrational, broadcast them to everybody. I miss the days when we had secrets. <laughs> I, had a, um, I had a professor in law school, in my business organizations class. His name was Walter Wyrock. he's passed away, but he was a um, German immigrant. And uh, he told us a story, he said, well, when I came to America in the 1950s, I didn't speak a word of English. So I didn't say a sing. And he paused for effect and he said, they thought I was brilliant. Sometimes being quiet is better. Some people will say that we're divided as a nation because we've abandoned our founding values. Some people will blame the breakdown of the traditional family. Some will blame the lack of care for the people on the margins of society. Some will blame the absence of faith from the public square. Some will Blame the presence of faith in the public square. Some people will blame government spending. Some people will blame the lack of government spending. Some people will blame greed. Others will blame the lack of innovation. Some will blame race. Others will blame other people's focus on race. Some will blame government regulation. Some will blame the lack of government regulation. Some will blame past politicians. Some will blame present politicians. Some will blame our nation's past sins. Some others will blame our nation's present sins. Some will blame the things that kids are being taught. Some will blame the things that kids aren't being taught. I can keep doing this, okay? I, I don't want to keep doing this. Suffice it to say, you get it. There are so many reasons that we think we're blaming for the reasons of our division In society. And these differences have caused a lot of rock throwing among the faithful. You know the expression, people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw rocks, shouldn't throw stones. Here's the interesting thing. Sincere followers of Jesus can be found holding on to every one of those opinions. Every one of them. On all sides. If we were to conduct a survey of sincere followers of Jesus, each would look to Jesus in support of the positions that they've taken. The faithful on the political right have been associated by many with the Republican Party since about 1979 and Jerry Falwell and the moral majority and they are certain that their position is the correct one. And the faithful on the political left are also certain that their view is the correct one because Jesus was for the poor and Jesus was for the downtrodden and oh yeah, Jesus had a single mom. Now, You can, if you like, add in the libertarians who think they're correct because Jesus set his people free and wants them to live free lives. And the independents who think they're right because Jesus said that his people belong to another kingdom altogether, so they're independent of this government. And so here we are, followers of Jesus divided by their political leanings. And Jesus doesn't want this. He doesn't want his followers to be divided. How do I know that? Because he said it in John 17. My prayer is that all of them may be one, Father, just as you and you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be as one as we are one. I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. That's pretty straightforward. Jesus wants his people to be unified. So what do we do now? Everyone seems so convinced that they're right, that their side is the righteous side, that their position is the godly position, that we don't know what to do. So we ask ourselves the question, what would Jesus say? We want to know, is Jesus a conservative? Is Jesus far right? Well, Of course he is. That's what I heard on TV and read on the internet. It's got to be true. Is Jesus a liberal or progressive? Is he far left? Of course he is. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven belongs to the down and out, to the such as these, not to the tech billionaires. Everyone seems to treat Jesus like a spiritual Rorschach test. People see Jesus exactly as they want to see him. People too often view Jesus through the filter of their politics and not through the filter of their faith people seem to be approaching Jesus as American Christians and not Christian Americans. As such, everyone feels not only justified, but extremely comfortable in throwing rocks at others. That's why, by the way, you see politicians from all sides quoting quoting the Bible in support of their positions. But when it comes to who's right and who's not who's actually the cause of the division that we're experiencing in our nation, everyone's looking in the wrong places. English theologian G.K. Chesterton figured it out, though. Here's what he said in response to an article, What's Wrong With This World? He answered, I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. The right isn't the problem. The left isn't the problem. The traditionalists aren't the problem. The progressives aren't the problem. The libertarians aren't the problem. The independents aren't the problem. We are the problem. And here's how Jesus said it. Matthew chapter 7, verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then... You will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. We're going to focus here for the rest of our time this morning, and now let's break it down. Here's the premise. Jesus doesn't want us to see things through our political lens as American Christians. Jesus wants us to see things clearly the way he sees them. So let's go back to verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Before you throw your stone, before you choose to respond to that political post that you saw on Twitter or on Facebook or on Instagram or on TikTok, before you call your cable company and complain about a program that they're showing, before you decide to boycott whatever company you think you can influence with a boycott, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank that's in your own eye? Why? I'm not picking on you. We all do it. And I know why we do it, actually. Here's why. Because we feel empowered when we do that. Because we think we're right when we do that. And because if we're right, we don't have to do anything differently. So we feel real comfortable saying it. But why do we do it when we have a plank in our own eye? Well, it's simply because we don't think that's true. We don't think we do have a plank in our own eye. So Jesus continued. Verse 4. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? So Jesus basically said the same thing over again. He repeated himself here. And in response, we'd say something like, I am not aware of a plank in my eye, Jesus. See, we really see our own issues. But Jesus knew about the plank because of our focus on the speck in the eye of another. It's the plank that causes us to focus on the speck. So here's what Jesus said, you hypocrite, you hypocrite. Stay with me here. When we read this passage, we basically think it says, Don't be critical of others. You got your own stuff to deal with. That's what we think it says. But that's not what Jesus was saying. Not at all. Jesus was saying, don't criticize others. You have the same issues in your own life. Not your own issues. You have the same issues that you're calling out in theirs. To which we go, wait, what? The same issues? I don't have the same issues as they do. I'm a Democrat. I don't have Republican issues. I'm a Republican. I don't have Democrat issues. I'm an Independent. I don't have the same issues as Democrats or Republicans. To which Jesus says, you don't think so? You hypocrite. What's a hypocrite? A person who expects something of someone else that they're unwilling to do themselves. A hypocrite is a person who accuses another of not doing something or of doing something that they're either guilty of or refuse to do themselves. By definition, you can't be a hypocrite unless somehow you've weighed in on something and you're not doing the thing that you think everyone else should do. Jesus says, essentially, if you're focused on the speck in somebody else's eye and it's really bothering you, chances are whatever you don't like in them, there's something in you. You hypocrite. That should make you go, cool. So how's that situation to be remedied? All right. He didn't leave us hanging. You hypocrite first. Jesus directed his people on how to remedy that situation first. So change begins here. Would you like to change? Would you like your country to recover its unity and vision? Well, first, first do what? First, take the plank out of your own eye. Here's what Jesus was saying. When something about another person bothers us. We need to take a long, hard look at ourselves before bothering them. Do not miss the power that this one little act alone could do to change everything. Republicans think, (laughs) Democrats, would you just look in the mirror? And Democrats think, hey, Republicans, if you could just see you the way that I see you you would be different. And Jesus is going, that's a great idea. Let's have everyone turn off our televisions and our podcasts and our computers and all go home and look in the mirror. Jesus was saying, how about everyone goes home and says, hmm, that's stuff that drives me crazy in other people, I wonder if there's any of that in me. And, and even though right now none of us think that there is, because if we thought that there was, we'd already have dealt with it. Jesus said, if it really upsets you and really drives you crazy, that's an indication that you're focused on a speck when there might actually be a plank in your eye. So watch this. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then, then you'll see clearly. So it's a promise from Jesus. It's a promise to you. It's a promise to your family. It's a promise to your company. It's a promise to your friends. It's a promise to your community. It's a promise to our nation. If you take the plank out of your own eye, here's the promise you'll see clearly. You see, you think the problem is with the other party. You think the problem is they don't see things the way they really are. You don't think they see clearly, and they don't think you see clearly. Jesus said, none of you see clearly How about that. If you want to see clearly, if you want to have the other party see clearly, if you want the nation to see clearly, Jesus says, well, I've got an idea. Go home, look in the mirror, look specifically for the thing in you that drives you crazy in the other group, and then you'll see clearly enough to remove that speck from the other person's eye. They did have something there, and so did you. But when you have two people with logs in their eyes, trying to take a speck out of another person's eye, you just end up putting each other's eyes out, don't you? Swinging that big log around. Can you imagine the difference it would make if we could just do this as Jesus instructed? So the first principle of recovery that we're going to see in this series is the road to recovery begins with we, not they. That's what Jesus says. The road to recovery in your family, and in your business, and in your marriage, and in your friend group, the road to recovery everywhere always begins with me and not them. It begins with me and not they. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's your calling. There are over, get this, there are over 200 million professing Christians in America. Okay, in a population of about 335 million, there are 200 million professing Christians. If we, as a group, were able to do just this one thing, it could have a massive impact on our communities. It could have a massive impact on the level of hostility in our conversations. And it could have a massive impact on our ability to actually implement changes that everybody knows need to be implemented. The road to recovery begins with we, not with they. We believers have some planks in our eye. Christian Democrats, Republicans, traditionalists, progressive, libertarians, independents, we all have planks, all of us. And the only way to see clearly or to help somebody else see clearly is to remove our own plank first. So here are some examples. How are you doing with money? You undisciplined with your money? Oh yeah, but it's my money. I can do what I want. Jesus said, nope, that's a plank. If you're not saving, if you're spending up to the edge of your income every paycheck, if you've got consumer debt that you regret, if you owe money on stuff you can't even remember you bought, if you're paying interest on credit cards and you don't even remember what you spent that money on, if you've lived up to the edge, if you've lived over the edge, if you've been irresponsible with your own money, Don't you lose a little bit of leverage when wagging your finger at the government for being responsible with taxpayers' money? Hmm? What if you've lived and are currently living way beyond your means? Listen, I love you guys, but that's a part of the problem. Uncle Sam's doing as you've been doing. Isn't that a plank? Can you imagine what would happen in our country if just the Christians, just the 200 million of us, Decided we're going to get our personal financial houses in order. We're going to purchase what we can afford and live within our means. We're going to give and save and live on the rest. We're going to stay out of debt. You imagine if we did that? That would shift the economy of our entire nation. It's really that simple. All right, here's another one. Are you greedy? (laughs) Of course I'm not greedy. Give me a break. But you can't see greed in the mirror. What if I ask it this way? Does over 98% of the money that you make that ends up in your hands get spent on your lifestyle? Is it your assumption that the money is only for your consumption? That's greed. That's an abuse of your personal financial prosperity. Jesus doesn't want you to abuse your personal financial prosperity. Do you know what would happen in America if we could get this under control? If every Christian in the country decided I'm not going to be an average American and give only a percent and a half of my money away, I'm going to be a Christian American. And I'm going to give away a significant percentage of my money. You know what that would do in our communities to have that kind of resource? In our neighborhoods to have that kind of resource? In our schools to have that kind of resource? It would change the world. Not because of the government. Not because of they, but because of we. We. Our capacity as Christians in this country, financially, is unbelievable. What about our families? Are the things we need to do in our families? Are the things we need to address in our families? Do we need to address how our children conduct themselves? Do we need to address how we're treating our spouses, how we're treating our neighbors, how we're treating our community? If we're being honest, we don't like to think about stuff like this, do we? Isn't that what they do? That's a plank. We could keep doing this, but you get the point. So let's wrap up. The solution to our ills does not begin in D.C. The solution to our ills begins in our homes and in our communities and in our lifestyles and in our work. The solution to our issues begins here and it begins now because at the end of the day, the road to recovery doesn't begin with they It has nothing to do with legislation. It has everything to do with behavior, our behavior. The road to recovery begins with we, not they. So what do you say? Let's do this. Because if we do it, here's what Jesus promised. Jesus said, if you look in the mirror and you'll address the plank in your eye, I promise you'll be able to see clearly to help the other people around you see clearly. And if more and more people see clearly, we will make progress in our communities and progress in our nation. But it doesn't begin with they. It begins with me. And it begins with we. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. These are um, tough words. It's, it's tough to be self-examining and self-critical. But God, we know we need to be. Because we know that you want an abundant life for us. You have brought us here and you've drawn us in so that we can benefit from you, from our connection to you, so we can understand what it means to be eternally connected to our creator, to our father. So God, help us to not cast blame, but to accept blame, to accept responsibility, to take on responsibility, to do our part to lead our people, to lead our community, to lead our nation to you. Because, God, you are our only hope. We thank you for this time this morning. I ask for a blessing upon all of our families here in the church building, here online. God, keep them safe and close. Help them to represent you with love and with truth and with grace. Because, God, we know you are our only hope. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.